Indeed, we need the Holy Spirit to instruct us to illuminate God's Word to our minds that we may understand and to warm our hearts to His truth, to His gospel. Let us pray. Blessed Lord, who caused all Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Today we're looking at Iconium as the Lord's winnowing advances in southern Galatia here in the late A.D. 40s during the first missionary journey of Paul and Barnabas and others who were with them. I'll be reading from verse 48 of chapter 13 where we see the finishing activities there at Antioch in Pisidia and I'll read through to verse 18. Uh, even moving on into the story, continuing in Lystra, our focus will be on verses 1 through 7 and the events that occurred in Iconium. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now it happened in Iconium that they were together, that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore, they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Jews and but by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their city, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, They tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. So this is Pentecost Sunday. Transitioning out of the Easter season into the Pentecost season, the longest season of the church calendar, because it is the longest phase of church history. Did you know that you live in the phase of church history known as Pentecost? 
And we read about it this morning, beginning in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit of God was poured out from the throne of heaven by the Father and the Son upon His people, giving them grace to believe the word of grace. And we are still the recipients of this to this day, still dwelling in the age of Pentecost as the Lord Jesus Christ is subduing His enemies, bringing His people to Himself. And we see this on display today at Iconium, where the Lord's winnowing fork is still in his hand, as we discussed last week, separating the wheat from the chaff through the preaching of God's word. You'll see there the map in the outline of your sermon notes. They've left Antioch over there in Syria on the eastern side of the map. They've gone across the Mediterranean Sea to Cyprus. We've looked at that. They landed at Salamis and they walked across the island, probably walked to Paphos. We saw the things that God did there and the way that the gospel was believed there on Cyprus. And then they sailed from Cyprus up to southern uh, part of what is now modern day Turkey. And they landed in what was called Pamphylia at that time. Now, I think the historical recounting is important because this really happened. These are real places, real people, real waters. I've looked into it a little bit more. It was probably springtime when they left. It would have given them the longest time to travel without having to deal with wintertime issues. And so they arrived there in Pamphylia. They've made their way up to Antioch. We saw the great work that God did there in, in uh, Pisidian Antioch, which is there in southern Turkey, which is now to, at that time was called Galatia, emphasizing that this is southern Galatia because the book of Galatians I believe almost for sure was written to these churches that are being planted right now as we're reading through this section of Acts. And the Judaizers came in and brought a terrible heresy that could have torn these churches apart. And God writes the book of, excuse me, Paul, divinely inspired, writes the book of Galatians to these churches. And we're going to get to the big, big controversy. We're going to look at it in chapter 15 with the Jerusalem Council. But I want you to be thinking about that and preparing yourselves for that as we come to it. So he's come up to Antioch and he's now made his way over to Iconium. And as you can see, he's going to go down to Paul and his crew is going to go down to Lystra and then to Derby, And then they're going to come back to Antioch. And that's going to be the full first missionary journey, which we've said probably occurred approximately between A.D. 47 and A.D. 49, some 17 to 19 years after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, after what we read about today in Acts chapter 2. So today we're going to look at Pisidian Antioch to Iconium. We're going to talk a little bit about what the travels would have been like. Then we're going to look at this great mixed multitude that believed. And also, on the other hand, the unbelieving Jews with their venom speech. We're seeing the word of God again, winnowing, separating people. We're going to see Paul's response to this. And it's a response to the mixed multitude and the resistance that he stays And he continues to speak the gospel boldly. Uh, The Lord himself, we're told, Jesus bears witness to his word of grace being preached through these signs and wonders that are given to be done through the hands of the apostles. And Barnabas is called an apostle here, not in the same sense as the 12, but as a messenger sent out by Christ. We'll see that as the gospel works its way into all the nooks and cranny of the city, we see the way that it should be. There should be one polarizing message present in our lives, in our families, in our cities, in our cultures. And that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this city is divided on that one question. There's a violent threat that comes up as usual because that's what the devil and his forces do. If they can't persuade you to be quiet through argumentation, through lies, through deceit, through threats, then they will come and try to kill you. Paul, knowing he has another another mission, has to complete his mission elsewhere. His team flees And they continue preaching. And then, of course, we'll look at ourselves and see how can we live out this life of being wheat that Jesus is bringing into his barn instead of being like the chaff that are going on to unquenchable fire. Which path are we on? So from Pisidian Antioch to Iconium. Iconium, the commentary tells us, is modern Konya and was apparently at least 85 to 90 miles from Antioch. So 85 to 90 miles is about how far they would have walked between these two cities. And that's at least four days of walking. Paul and Barnabas would likely have traveled farther along the Via Sebasti. You can correct me later if I didn't pronounce that correctly. 
on which they had initially approached Antioch. So this was an important Roman road that had been built by the Romans as a part of their conquest and dominion in this part of the world. Going on with the commentary, it made more sense for them to take a paved road when possible, and Roman roads built especially for pack animals and pedestrians were superior to most roads in Europe before 1850. I mean, think about that, what the Lord provided for the gospel with these roads at that time. Next, going on with the commentary, at 20 to 26 feet wide throughout its length, it would have readily accommodated wheeled traffic as well as pedestrians. I saw some pictures of this. I encourage you to take, it's still there. These roads are so solidly built that you can still see pictures of them. You can still go and walk these roads. More from the commentary, the Via Sebasti, also known as the Imperial Road, was built by command of the Roman Emperor Augustus beginning in 6 BC. So that's when it started. The road formed a great arc beginning along the Mediterranean at Purge or perhaps Antalya. And if you turn to the next page of your notes, you can see this uh, road on the map as I read about its course. It then ran northwest to Komama, looping past Lake Burdur to Pisidian Antioch, before looping to the west and southwest through Iconium and Lystra. Where the eastern end terminated is still debated. The road initially was built to allow Roman military units to quickly move through the region, enabling a quick response to the ongoing depredations by mountain tribes such as the Homo Nadenses. While its exact path was determined by the topographical realities of the landscape, its general path was conceived to hem in the mountain tribes and connect those newly established Roman colonies in Asia Minor, which were founded, at least in part, for the same reason. And these would have included Kamama, Pisidian Antioch, and Lystra. In addition, the road then connected those colonies and other major cities of the region to Mediterranean ports. You can see it goes down and it comes right near the port, or near the coastline. Thus, the Via Sebasti and its tributary roads served both as an important interregional transportation and communication network and an important link to the wider Roman world. So I think this helps us get into the experience of Paul and Barnabas and their mission team a little more fully to know why they landed where they landed there on the coast and how they traveled up to Antioch, uh, Pisidian Antioch, and what that path would have been like. It would have been up and down and you can see it went along lakes and there would have been Um, difficult travels uh, up and down and yet beautiful scenery for them to see. And it would have been then out of Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, continuing along the Via Sebastia down to Iconium. So we can see the providence of God beforehand, bringing all of this infrastructure into place for the gospel to be spread throughout the world so quickly. Imagine what it would have been like if the gospel would have been brought to this world before the Roman roads, before seafaring travel was in place like this. The Lord prepared ahead of time for his message. So what happens? It happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. Let's talk about this town Iconium a little bit. I want each of us to get a sense of what this town was like because as we consider our world today in preaching the gospel today, I think we see a lot of similarities, and this will give us hope in the power of the gospel, in the power of Christ to bring faith, to bring cultural transformation. The city of Iconium, located at the juncture of several important roads, was the most important court center in western Lycaonia. Mark Antony gave the city to the Galatian king Amentus in 36 B.C., And after his death, Iconium was incorporated into the new province of Galatia. Augustus founded the colony Iulia Augusta Iconium, besides which the old Greek city continued to exist. So let that sink in. The Greek culture really was still in place alongside the Roman culture in this town. So the Gentile currents in place would have gone back as far as persisting Greek culture right alongside the newer Roman culture, which had conquered the Greek culture. The cavalry unit stationed in Iconium is attested to by coins. So there was a Roman military presence here. 
The theater was begun under Augustus, and so the Roman theater was present there in this town. Emperor Claudius had considerable influence in the region, attested by the fact that Iconium was allowed to call itself a city, which was only something that an emperor could decide once you came under Roman rule. Pliny describes Iconium as a most famous city. So that's where he goes to next, this most famous city that has Roman troops. It has uh, a theater. It's an important town. It has courts where they come together for rulings. The citizens of Iconium were divided into four tribes, which were named after the deities worshipped in the city. So their background is the worship of the pantheon, whether it be Greek or whether it be Roman by different names. Besides Zeus, Magistos, Artemis, Apollo, Poseidon, Pluto, and Heracles, several Phrygian mother goddesses were also worshipped. An inscription mentions the mother of the gods describing as savior. And the imperial cult is attested to by the reference to a priest of Tiberius. So all these forms of paganism are mixed together in this town. Greek, Roman, more local with Phrygian, all mixed together together. It's, it's a bit of a metropolitan town and it's an important place of judicial activity and of commerce along this road. So it's a big town. And don't forget that the entire multitude of the city is divided over this one question. Who is Jesus Christ? So it goes to the Jews first. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ for it is, the, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. And this is still true today. We always want in every opportunity that we have to preach the gospel to those who still consider themselves to be Jews. We want to give the gospel to the Jews. Listen to what Jesus said. Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from the region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now listen to what Jesus says to that, that heartfelt cry. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. But he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's how important it is to the Jews first at that time, especially. Going on, then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. But he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. And she said, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. So Paul, Barnabas, the ministers to the Gentiles always started first with the Jews. And then there's this phrase that they so spoke that there was a multitude. How did they speak? What does that mean? Well, it has to do with the content and the manner of their speech. And yet we have to go back and remember the Lord's spirit must anoint the preachers and work in the hearts of the hearers if that mutual activity is going to be united unto faith in the hearts of the hearers. Commentary says so plainly about how they preached, so plainly, so convincingly, with such an evidence and demonstration of the Spirit, and with such power. They spoke so, so warmly, uh, so affectionately, and with such a manifest concern for the souls of men. That one might perceive they were not only convinced, but filled with the things they spoke of. And of that, what they spoke came from the heart and therefore was likely to reach to the heart. They so spoke so earnestly and so seriously, so boldly and so courageously that those who heard them could not but say that God was with them of a truth. Yet the success was not to be attributed to the manner of their preaching, but to the spirit of God. Who made use of their means. Did the Lord Jesus Christ work in these preachers by the Holy Spirit to have them speak in such a way? Yes. Did those who were listening come to faith in part through the beauty of the way that they were preaching? Yes. But did they ultimately come to faith because God had to work in those who had been pointed to eternal life? Of course. So we see the interaction here of how it works in God's providence. Remember Acts 13, 48. 
Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. This is back in Pisidian Antioch. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So if you believe, it is because you have been appointed to eternal life. And God has come by his spirit and worked in you and granted you faith upon the hearing and the reading of God's word. Commentary says, following on from the strong statement about God's sovereignty in the process of enabling belief. In the verse we just read, Luke affirms once more that God uses as his instrument the faithful preaching of the gospel. So we are to be his ministers, his ambassadors, and he will work in us to be so filled with the things that we're preaching that as we read, it'll be in our hearts and it will be used to reach the hearts of those who are listening. All the while we're doing this, we know that God must be the one working in the ear, in the hearts and the minds of the hearers unto salvation. So what happens? A great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. We read about what happened at Pentecost. It's still happening. The Holy Spirit is still being poured out mightily through the preaching of the word here. The Lord grants faith to a large number in Iconium, both Jew and Gentile. So it's a mixed multitude. This is an astonishing miracle. Consider this. Not only individual faith that was given to a lot of people, but we see that these people who are so different are brought together. Think of it. Drawing Gentiles out of the surrounding pagan culture. But not just Gentiles who had a lot in common, but Gentiles who had various different pagan gods that they worshipped. And not just bringing them together, but bringing them together with Jews. Jews who wouldn't eat with or go into homes with Gentiles. Bringing them together in the gospel. Let's remember what we read last week about this winnowing fork, which I think is a really important way to understand what's happening then and now. John answered, saying to all, I indeed baptized you with water, but one mightier than I is coming, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is what is happening here before our eyes. And it is still happening today. And the question continues to come to each of our own hearts and minds. Where are you? This is the continued work of Jesus Christ himself that we're seeing. We've called it the Acts of the, of the Apostles, right? But what is, it's really the Acts of Jesus Christ himself from heaven by his spirit, by his word, through his people. He's acting from heaven. He's working by his spirit. He's working through his ministers and they are preaching the gospel faithfully and he's granting faith to the hearers. Conquered hearts believed. And it's, it's worth pausing and emphasizing this great miracle. This great miracle when a human heart is made attentive and hungry to the truth of God and that human heart hungers to grow in Christ and sees their sin and cries out in faith for forgiveness. This is a great miracle. In fact, it's called new life. It's called a new creation. It's called regeneration. It is as great a miracle as the beginning creation itself. It's important for us to remember that. Now, this is pointing to believers who go on believing. I want to bring in Psalm 1 for our consideration. And I want us to see ourselves, hopefully, in light of what's happening in the early verses of Psalm 1. I'm describing these believers as those who believe and go on believing. Listen to Psalm 1 verses 1 through 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. But on the other hand, we see unbelieving Jews uh, with venom speech uh, described in verse two. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles 
and poisoned their minds against the brethren. So here we see that the chaff are now revealing themselves, not only by rejecting the gospel as unbelievers, but by going on to be agitators and to give in to agitation. Poisoned and being poisoned against God's children here called the brethren. So note from Psalm 1 that these people here, how are they described? They are the ungodly. They are the sinners. They are the scornful. They do not, being ungodly, they do not consider the Lord and his word. That's the essence of being ungodly. They do not consider the Lord or his word. And they walk in the misery of sin to be sinners. Not only do they not consider God in his ways, but they live in their sin. And then they go on from there to mock and to scorn and to stand against God's church to attack his people. This is what happens to those who are the chaff. And there's more from Psalm 1 about them that gives a further description of their future. The ungodly are not so. That's saying because we have these wonderful words about the righteous. But now it says the ungodly are not so. But are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the, in the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the way of the ungodly shall perish. That is the future. For all those who are outside of Christ, no matter how firm they may appear to others or how solid they may feel in their own minds, it's all deception. And this gets into the concept of poisoning minds. Like Satan himself, the serpent who poisoned the minds of our first parents in the garden with his lies, and they were poisoned, they were envenomated when they believed him. So believing lies means having a poisoned mind. And spreading lies means that it's contagious. You become a poisoner of the minds of others. Has your mind been poisoned by lies? How would you know? How would you know? So Jesus' winnowing fork is in his hand as his ministers preach his word. And he's using the word of God by his Holy Spirit to clearly delineate between those who are his beloved wheat and those who are his chaff-like enemies. As powerful, hear this, brothers and sisters, it's especially poignant in today's world. As powerful and as substantial and as knowledgeable and as wealthy and as firm as Christ's enemies do appear to our eyes, He says, in the eternal perspective, they are lighter than chaff. They will be blown away. They and their satellites and their structures and their technology and their news and their NSA and all of their powers are like chaff, which shall be blown away. If it's not put to use for his kingdom. Blown away is nothing. As his people, me and you, his living stones rest on him, the chief cornerstone who is building the structure we are told that is filling the entire earth as he is bringing down all the kingdoms of men. So what's Paul's response? So we see. We see the wheat and the chaff, and we need to understand the direction of both. What's Paul's response to this? He stays and he speaks boldly. Therefore, they stayed there a long time speaking boldly in the Lord. What is this therefore pointing to? Well, it's the great revival plus the great resistance. He sees the whole thing that's happening, and he stays to continue to preach. For a long time, we're told. He's focused upon encouraging believers and getting the word of God to the entire town. Remember, they're always encouraging them to what? Continue in the grace of God. Continue in the grace of God. So he stays to do this. They did not allow the resistance to scare them away. It's worth noticing their focus is upon those who believe to be encouraged and those who've yet to hear the message. 
And so they stay, and the implication is they're going to stay as long as they can without getting killed. Okay? And you see at Pisidian Antioch, it wasn't very long. They didn't let them stay very long. In fact, they didn't get a chance to even get a foothold and get the message out, so they shook the dust off their feet when they left Pisidian Antioch. But the strong suggestion is that here in Iconium, they did find a man of peace, like we hear with Jesus telling his disciples. And so there was a foothold, a better foothold, a stronger foothold established in Iconium, which allowed them to get the gospel out to the entire town. Commentary says, the apostles working for Christ faithfully and diligently according to the trust committed to them. Because the minds of the Gentiles were evil affected against them, one would think that therefore they should have withdrawn and hastened out of the way, or if they had preached, should have preached cautiously for fear of giving further provocation to those who were already enough enraged. No, on the contrary. Therefore, they abode there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord. So not only did they stay, they did not give in to the temptation to back off of the message. They continued to speak the full message boldly whenever they had an opportunity. They resisted the temptation to tone down the message of salvation. Surely by then they could have picked up on the areas of the gospel that were most offensive to this Gentile or that kind of Gentile or to this Jew. They did not. They continued to preach the fullness of the gospel. That's boldness. Remember, we've defined boldness as continuing to live and preach the gospel before the face of any threats. That's boldness. That's boldness. And it's not a personality quality. It is a gift of the Holy Spirit to all who are filled with the Holy Spirit. Next, what does the Lord do? See, the Lord is active, brothers and sisters. As we're going out, we're not on our own. As we're doing his will, we're not alone. He is with us and he bears witness to his word of grace. If we are preaching and living the word of grace, then the king of grace from his throne of grace will bear witness that we are the people of grace. We can count on this. So the Lord here is Jesus Christ himself, the man who walked the earth with them. There's someone who came to the door just then. Uh, the man who walked there, you know, the man who walked the earth with them. The man who went to the cross and suffered as we discussed in Christian Instruction Hour this morning. The man who had eaten fish with them after he was raised from the dead. The man who had shown them his wounds and walked amongst them during 40 days before he ascended up into heaven. This man who had told them that the spirit would be poured out upon them. This man who is God reigning at right's hand, God's right hand ascended. He is the one being referenced here when it says the Lord. <clears throat> That's Jesus Christ. The crucified, resurrected, ascended Jesus is showing forth his divine power from his father's right hand. Pouring out his Holy Spirit unto new believers and unto miracles attesting to the truth of the word of his grace. And it's worth noting that it's connected to the word of his grace. We're going to talk more about that. So what was he doing? He was granting, how was he bearing witness? How was he bearing witness? We've already seen one way is that he's bringing faith into the hearts of the people. There's great numbers believing. That's one way. Next, he's granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Miracles are happening. And we read about one of these when they get to Lystra, the fellow who'd never walked and he's healed and he's walking. It's a great miracle. Things like this are happening. No divine power. Look at the way it's phrased, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. No divine power resides within the creature, brothers and sisters. But Christ's almighty power, he granted to work signs and wonders by the hands of his ministers for the purpose of bearing witness to the word of his grace. You see, that's what's happening. That's why these are called signs. They're given to bear witness to the word of his grace. And so this is why we think these types of miracles, these sign wonders that were given to attest to the reality of the canon being open have now ceased. So the commentary says, Christ himself has attested this word of grace who is the amen, the faithful witness. He has assured us that it is the word of God and that we may venture our souls upon it. He is attesting to the truth of the word of, of the word of God by these signs and wonders. And it was said in general concerning the first preachers of the gospel, that they had the Lord working with them and confirming the word by signs following that's in Mark. That's during Christ's life on the earth before he died and was buried and resurrected and ascended. So it is said particularly concerning the apostles here 
that the Lord confirmed their testimony in granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Top of page 7 in your sermon notes. And the miracles they wrought in the kingdom of nature, as well as the wonders that were done by their word. And the greater miracles wrought on men's minds by the power of divine grace. The Lord was with them while they were with him. An abundance of good was done. And it's really important to keep in mind that the greater miracle is when Jesus Christ himself from heaven by his word brings the heart of a rebellious fallen sinner to believe the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the greatest miracle. We should be far more thrilled with that than with someone jumping up who is lame and going on to walk, whose soul may or may not be saved. So it is eternal life coming to men's souls by the power of heaven that should thrill us with God's power the most. Although we do rejoice and we do look to God to do great and wondrous miracles even still this day. So how does Luke summarize the gospel preaching here in this place? Hear these words. The word of his grace. The word of his grace. So have you been brought to the awareness of God's grace to you in Christ? Have you been brought to this point? Or do you yet know God's grace to you in Christ? Or if you have been brought to God's grace to you in Christ, do you struggle to continue in God's grace and to begin to rely upon yourself or to forget about God's favor to you in Christ? Have you looked to him, resting entirely upon him and believing that he has placed his favor upon you in Christ purely because of his grace to you? Not because of anything you have done or could ever do. And do you continue to rest in that place of his divinely bestowed favor upon you? Accomplished through the death of Christ upon the cross, your sins forgiven, the remission of sins preached to all the world so that you are now robed in Christ's righteousness and beloved of the Father in heaven. This is the word of grace. Can you sing, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me Savior or I die. The word of grace had been brought to Iconium and the king of grace from his throne of grace by the spirit of grace, is testifying to his grace. May it be so in our lives. So what happens next? As a result of the continued preaching of the gospel in Iconium, not only does a great multitude initially believe, the multitude of the city is exposed to the gospel and was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. The winnowing hand of Christ has now completed his work in this town. It appears as though it's gone out to, if not the entire city, the majority of the city. The multitude of the city is what we're told. And this single message of God's grace in Christ has divided the entire town. It is the central focus of this town at this time. I hope that we will note that in today's world, there are so many endless controversies brought before our eyes by various voices. Where do you stand politically? What do you think about masks? What do you think about COVID? What do you think about the vaccines? What do you think? Ford or Chevy? Which team do you follow? Blah, 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 blah. Endless things that divide us. Skin color. What kind of clothes you wear? How much money you make? What nation you live in? What's your view on immigration? What's your view on the debt ceiling? What's your view on public policy in the state? What's your view on abortion? What's your view on transgender? All of these things that are Legitimate topics, perhaps, to discuss. But they distract us, brothers and sisters, from the one point of polarization that is to be the point that we are to focus our lives upon. It is the only one point of polarization that carries any value. Do you side with Christ or do you side with his enemies? That's the point of polarization that matters the most. That's the question that should occupy our minds. And that's the question that we should be laying out there for people to consider. 
If we want to stir up the potential for controversy and division, let it be for the one name of Jesus Christ and for His glory and that people would be left with needing to decide who He is as a result of engaging with us. The commentary says, We may here see the meaning of Christ's prediction that He came not to send peace upon earth, but rather division. That's what Jesus said. If all would have given in unanimously into His measures, there would have been universal concord. And could men have agreed in this, there would have been no dangerous discord nor disagreement in any other thing. But disagreeing here, the breach was as wide as the sea. Yet the apostles must not be blamed for coming to Iconium. Although before they came, the city was united and now it was divided. Why? For it is better that part of the city go to heaven than all would go to hell. So what happens next? It is the same thing we tend to see throughout all of Paul's ministry and in the world today. When a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them. Just like before in other cities, we see the same sinful process of resisting God that is on display here. Who has come to steal and to kill and destroy? The devil and his forces. Does the devil and the for- does the kingdom of darkness limit itself to civil discourse in order to try to win the conversation? Does the, do the forces of darkness limit themselves to truth and logic and rational thinking and, and peaceful? Uh, no, no, not at all. Here's what happens. When the Jews note the spreading of conversions, they first resort to lies. Remember, they poisoned the minds. They resort to lies. They form evil coalitions, right? The Gentiles and the Jews and the Iconium rulers. And if this doesn't work, they will eventually resort to violence and usually under the color of law. So there'll be the threats of violence first, and then there will be real violence, FBI agents knocking on your door in the, in the, at the beginning of the day while your wife and children are still there. We have examples of this in our world today. See the same patterns for those who've set themselves up the Lord, against the Lord Jesus Christ. It continues to happen. Again, usually under the color of law. You see that phrase there, with their rulers. Commentary says an effort is made to physically assault and stone them. This term refers to mistreating someone in an insolent manner. Again, they're not kind. They're not friendly. This is harassing, molesting. It's to physically intimidate. And it gives a good sense of what's being done to them. There's a desire to stone them either as false teachers or for teaching blasphemy, since that is what stoning indicated in a Jewish context. The plot comes, though, from both Jews and Gentiles. Such variation in terms of the opponents occurs throughout the book. Though Jews are often most responsible in other settings, Gentiles, like this setting, join the opposition. Both populace and rulers are involved, so the opposition spans the whole society. And it has the feel of mob violence. Does that sound familiar to you in today's world today? We see all kinds of various forces in our world coming together and forming many threats against those who love Christ and desire to walk in his ways. I want us to note that those who reject the word of God's grace, those who reject Christ, and this is the way I asked you before, how do you know if you're deceived? Okay, well, you'll end up over here. You'll end up not considering God's word, the ungodly. You'll end up walking in sinful ways, denying God's word and law. And you'll end up scorning God's people and God's ways and being involved in attacks and scornful thoughts and words towards the people of God. So how do you know if you've been deceived? This is what you'll act like. So note that those who reject the word of God's grace, who reject Christ, they remain in their sin and they will then go on with hardened hearts to grow in hatred for God's word and God's people. You see, we're always going in one direction or another. Your soul is never neutral. You're either going closer to Christ or further from him. Christians should not be surprised by seeing this wickedness on display. This should not surprise us. On the contrary, as we see here in Iconium, as the Lord grants success to his word, the polarization around Christ will increase And persecution will intensify so long as Christ's opponents have worldly means to spread lies, threats, and violence. So as long as Christ's opponents have the means to spread these lies and these threats and this violence, 
They will do so as long as the gospel continues to advance in the earth. So how do we respond? It's fascinating. Paul teaches Timothy, you know, who's from this region, who probably saw these things happening. He teaches him within the context of these particular persecutions that Paul experienced there in South Galatia. Listen to what he says to him about 16 years later. So we're going to see in Acts 16, he goes back later and he gets Timothy and he brings him along with him. But here he's writing to Timothy later. It's one of his last epistles, Paul writes. Listen to what he says to him. This is our answer to how to deal with this. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured and out of them all the Lord delivered me. So there's point one. We know that we cannot leave this earth until the Lord's appointed day. And he will deliver us out of every threat, every form of violence along the way until our work is done here. Next, Paul says, yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So point number two is that we just expect it. And you know that you are not deceived if you're receiving persecution. If you're loving people, living out the gospel, doing his will, walking in his ways, and being persecuted for it, that will serve as a wonderful uh, form of affirmation to your soul that you are not the chaff being blown away, but that you are those wheat being brought into his barn that are substantial and will last forever. Going on. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. So we should expect to see those outside of Christ rage on and get worse. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. So we continue in grace. We continue in the Word. We trust in God's plan. We trust in His ways. And we don't give way to the threats and the fears that are around us. So Timothy was likely very well acquainted with what Paul went through in South Galatia since he lived there. In Acts 16, 1 and 2, listen. Then he came to Derby and Lystra. <clears throat> and behold, a certain disciple is there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So Paul's encouraging Timothy in light of these events of how to consider being a good pastor in this pastoral epistle to him. And this is a good word to us today as well. So what does Paul do when he finds out, when the Lord delivers him, he finds out? They became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region, and they were preaching the gospel there. So the Lord protected him. See, they became aware of it. Somehow they found out about it. And we see there in verse, again, in verse 11, to emphasize, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. And in some way, they became aware of it. They knew what was going on. You know, us Christians will have intelligence sources as well. And uh, they got news that they needed in time. So Paul preaches in each town as long as he can, only leaving when his life is threatened. He's going to stay there and try to preach the word to as many people as possible, try to build people up in the gospel as long as he can before he has to leave. He knows he has a wider mission than one single town. So he leaves when his life mission is endangered. He understands his life mission is bigger than just this one city. So I want us to note the repetitive pattern that Paul is going through at this point because it should really encourage us and help us. Persecution leads to the gospel going further wider. Lystra and Derby, cities of Lycaonia and to the surrounding region and they were preaching the gospel there. Think about it. They did not stop preaching the gospel. They continue to do God's will. They know the pattern. They know what's going to happen probably. They preach. They watch God work and winnow and separate. And those who hate Christ come against them. They stay and they remain and encourage people boldly in the gospel as long as they can. But then they have to flee for their lives. And this is like, you know, rinse and repeat, right? Over and over they're going through this. Who would sign up for this? Would you want something in your contract to say, look, can we just not settle down somewhere, please, and not have people try to kill me? <clears throat> Who would continue in this once they realize the pattern? Would you? We're called to take up our cross and follow him, are we not?
And I think it's important for us to see as we transition now into considering these things more deeply for ourselves. That we are not apostles, but we are believers like Paul and Barnabas. And we have a life of ministry and love and service that we're called to. And so will we fulfill that? So let's consider some things together. Brothers and sisters, please let it rest in your mind that the gospel is the power of God. And that when you speak the word of grace because you understand who Christ is and what he has done on the cross, and you lay out for those people in your lives with clarity and humility who he is and what he has done, you preach of his death as an atoning sacrifice for the sins of his people. You preach of his resurrection from the dead. You preach of his ascension and his invincible life. You preach of his current reign at God's right hand. You teach and preach of the Spirit's work in your life and the word of God alive in us and through us. And you lay out a life of walking in his love and in his wisdom. Remember, the gospel is the power of God. Those words that you speak, let it sink in. The power of God. So venture your life on it. Venture your ministry on it. Venture everything on the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Next, understand that the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ's winnowing tool. It will winnow. It will winnow. It will winnow. It never returns void. There must be a response to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that response will determine for us to see, we'll be able to see for most people in most cases, wheat or chaff. And really the question is for you, are you wheat or chaff? And the simple thing about the wheat is they believe and follow. They believe and follow. They believe the gospel. They find it to be their treasure and their all in all. And they follow the good shepherd who lived it and spoke it and who still speaks today. The chaff they reject, they lie, they divide, they hate, they carry out violence, and they follow the father of lies. These are the two paths. And one way to think of the chaff is that they're poisoned and they're poisoners. And it's worth pondering the power of deceit. A good prayer would be, oh God, please deliver me from deceit, from self-deceit, self-deception, helpless against it. Do you understand that? You are helpless against self-deception apart from Christ. So some of us, most of us in our pride think that we have the ability to discern truth from falsehood. We do not. Cry out to God to walk in the truth, to see the truth, to know the truth, to understand the truth, and to believe the truth, and to walk in the truth. Next, persistence in the face of resistance for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. Persistence in the face of resistance for the sake of Christ and his kingdom. And this will involve boldness, and this will involve love. Being willing to sacrifice your life and your reputation your, your finances for the sake of the gospel. Next. Brothers and sisters, we are not alone. The Lord is with us as we serve him, as we love him, as we obey him. He is delivering us from the evil one and he is with us bearing witness to his word. Do you know that Jesus is for you bearing witness to his word? When you see someone else believing the word that you speak to them. Husbands, did you know that when you wash your wives with the word and you present the word of God to your wife, your wife, and she believes it? Jesus Christ is bearing witness to you of the word of grace and that he is with you. Parents, when you bring the gospel of grace to your children and you see your children believing in him and trusting in him. Do you realize he is with you and he is bearing witness to the word of his grace? When we are together and he's growing our love for one another and he's seeing us through all the challenges of life and sin and and iron sharpening iron that we have faced through the years. He is bearing witness to us of the word of grace that he is with us. These things cannot happen apart from his presence. 
and his work. And so we praise him and we remember that we are not orphans and that we are not alone and that he will never stop bearing witness to the word of his grace and to the glory of his name. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is a word of grace. Start in grace. Continue in grace. Morning in grace. Evening in grace. Day in grace. Night in grace. Sleep in grace. Wake in grace. Eat in grace. Fast in grace. Drink in grace. Rejoice in grace. Grieve in grace. It is all of grace from start to finish. Our entire lives are in the hands of our King of grace who has according to his unchangeable decree, placed his love and his favor upon us. Glory be to God. We rest in grace and we have a word of grace because Christ has died. Christ has taken our sins upon himself. Christ has suffered what we deserve to suffer. And he did die, his soul separated from his body. And his dead body was placed in that grave. And he suffered all the agonies of hell for us because of God's grace that we could be delivered. He is our great Savior. He is our great Lord. He is our King of grace. We have a word of grace. We have a life of grace. We have a future of grace. And it is invincible grace. It will never give way. Praise be to God. Next. Brothers and sisters, this grace, this gospel, Christ himself, this the greatest message of life should be our only polarizing stance. If there's anything that divides us from another person that is not the gospel, get rid of it. Get rid of it. Who cares if you're a Republican or a Democrat? Get rid of it. Who cares about your stance on politics or on finances? When I say get rid of it, I mean... Don't let it be a polarizing force in your life. Are these important questions? I'm not saying they're not. But they're not this kind of question. If we are to be divided from someone, may it only be because we stand in Christ and his grace. And we preach of him and his glory and his grace. And we live out his law of love in our lives. May that be the only thing that would ever divide us from another human being. And may we not be the one who does the dividing unless we have to. As much as it depends with you, live at peace with all men. Next. Brothers and sisters, as we walk in this grace, there is an enemy who hates grace. Who, who wants nothing but pure and unmixed justice. Perverted justice, right? With lies and deceptions, but no grace at all. Our enemy wants nothing to do with grace. So expect persecution from all angles if you believe and you love and you obey Christ and his word of grace. Expect it. Meditate upon this. Expect it. And it, look, Jesus said he came to bring a sword. And that sword even, he said, will separate you from family members. See, when you look around in this room, there are people here that are washed in the blood of Christ. This is your permanent family. See, my last name, your last name, it's not going to last throughout eternity. The name of Christ is the name that will last. And so understand this. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ may indeed divide you from your family. And what a great shame and loss it would be to give way to the demands of those around you, even your family members, if they call you to not live in and for Christ in any way. Watched a movie lately, set in the late 60s, early 70s. Young man and young lady are falling in love and he looks at her and he says, I just want you to know one thing. If you ever come between me and Christ, it is over. That was kind of how he, he kicked off the relationship. There should, be a, there should be a sense of that within each and every one of us. That nothing is more important than walking in Christ. So when we're persecuted from any angle, how are we going to respond? Next, 
Finally, what do we do? We rejoice. Jesus told us to rejoice when we are persecuted. And we move on and we continue preaching and living the gospel in boldness and in confidence that our Lord goes with us and that his grace is almighty and that he is continuing to do his work from heaven. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, how we rejoice in your word. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you that you are reigning from your Father's right hand. Father and Son, thank you for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit then and now. Thank you for the work that you did there in Iconium. Thank you for how your gospel of grace winnows and separates those who are the people of grace from those who are lost in unbelief. Thank you, O God, that you have chosen in your infinite grace to bestow upon us, even when we were your enemies, undeserving, unmerited grace that you gave to us when we did merit your wrath and your anger that we had earned. And instead, you've brought us into your family. You've made us your friends. You've called us your children. Lord Jesus Christ, you've said that we are your brethren and we praise you and we thank you that this is eternal grace that shall never end and that you've brought us into eternal security with you. Bless us, we pray, to be filled with more faith upon the hearing of your word and lives of greater faithfulness, all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.